0: Well, good morning, uh, church family, good morning to some of our online guests, and good morning to you guys. <laughs> it is so good to see you, so grateful uh, to, to get to do this together. I just uh, am, am thankful all the more for uh, the idea of living in a community of faith. It's just a, it's a precious, precious gift. Miriam, thank you for... Uh, giving us a little insight into your story and your precious mom, and uh, that's, a, that's a precious gift to us. Well, we are back in Luke 14, and I want to start with a reference to a book that I read a long time ago. It, it came out in two, 2011. Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called Not a Fan, and you'll get the message as we get into this text, but I thought that book really captures uh, what we're going to encounter here. And then also, this passage, maybe more than any in this segment of Luke, really (laughs) kind of bears the title that we have for this series called A Road Less Traveled. We're going to find out why the road that Jesus commends for us is less traveled uh, today. It's going to be very, very clear Um, commentators will say that this is one of maybe if not the most difficult passage in uh, Luke to interpret for a couple of reasons. Jesus certainly says some hard things, very, very hard things. And so that is difficult to kind of take in and understand and apply. Secondly, though, there's a lot of meaning and relationships of the different parts of the passage that's challenging. It's kind of hard to put that together. Now, if that weren't enough, I'm preaching a message that recommends hating your mother on Mother's Day. (laughs) So I'm gonna do my best to clear that up and make sure that's not an obstacle to us today. Moms, I hope you're having uh, an awesome, awesome Sunday. Let's get into the text here. Verse 25, we're gonna drop in on Jesus walking with a crowd verse 25 says actually great crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned and said to them now let's kind of get this setting Uh, remember he left that uh, lunch or dinner appointment with a Pharisee and a crowd there now he's making his way presumably toward Jerusalem And there is a great crowd. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus is he's not going for great crowds. He's not concerned about the size of the crowd. He's concerned about the people that make up the crowd, like what they're like. And and with that in mind, I want to go back to Kyle Eidelman's book, Not a Fan. He describes two kinds of people that might be around Jesus, certainly in his day, but then we can apply it to the church. And his two big categories are fans and followers. Fans and followers. Here's how he describes fans. They are enthusiastic admirers. And here's what he says. These are hard things to hear, but fans often confuse their admiration for devotion. They mistake their knowledge of Jesus for intimacy with Jesus. And fans assume their good intentions make up for their apathetic faith. That's a fan. A follower, on the other hand, and that word will be uh, interchangeable with disciple. A follower is a learner, a student, an adherer or even an apprentice, that's a great picture in any kind of context. That's a follower and the intent of the follower is to emulate the teacher. That's the whole intention of one being a student, being a pupil, being an apprentice is I want to be like the one that I am following. I want my life to look like theirs. So Jesus sees this great crowd and he knows they're full of fans and followers. And so he stops, pulls everybody together and starts to speak to them. And I wanna just push you to the end of this passage real quickly because this is a warning passage. Look at the last words in verse 35. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That should sober everyone. It should be, hey, I'm going to say some hard things, some things that you may not understand, some things that may stretch you, even offend you. Listen, take it in, receive whatever it is you might need to hear. Uh, This reminded me, uh, actually Kimberly reminded me of something that we do in premarital counseling. Every single couple we, we, we meet with, In the first few minutes of our first meeting, we say to them, hey, okay, so we're doing premarital counseling. We're trying to prepare you for marriage. And so here's what you need to know. There are no greater fans of marriage than us. Like We love it. It's a great thing. It's a gift. It's a precious thing that God uses in our lives to help us grow. But listen to this. Nothing will be harder except maybe parenting. Um, nothing will stretch you more. Nothing will challenge your selfishness more so than marriage. And so we say to them, our job now is not to be your cheerleader. We're for you. We're going to applaud. We're going to celebrate that wedding. But we're here to give you warnings, cautions, counsel about how to make your marriage thrive Over a lifetime, I think that's kind of what this passage is like. Jesus loves people, right? And he's probably excited. There's a whole bunch of people standing around that are listening. But he says, listen, I don't want you to be a fan. I don't need fans. I want you to be a follower. So here's his counsel to this great crowd, beginning in verse 26. First of all, following Christ is costly, I wonder if you heard that when you first heard the gospel. Here's what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, sorry ladies, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now just imagine, put yourself in that scene, there's... A great crowd, I'm sure lots of energy, and maybe people were musing about something Jesus recently taught, or maybe they were rehearsing a great miracle that they saw, or maybe they were kind of celebrating how Jesus really took it to those Pharisees back at that that meal. Who who knows what was going on? Probably a lot of energy and excitement, and uh, Jesus says, all right, everybody, huddle up here. Following me is going to be costly. Here's how costly. You're going to have to hate your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, your children, even your own life. I bet the feeling of that moment got pretty sober. Now, let's understand this word hate so that we don't misunderstand. Um, Jesus is not saying that you literally need to hate, hold in contempt those who are closest to you. Obviously, in many other passages, we're told to uh, love our neighbor, to love our family, even to love our enemy. So it, it can't mean that we're to do the opposite of that. So it it must mean something else. And the best understanding of that word is to love one less. To love one less. So there's a comparison here. Jesus is saying, in in the comparison of your love for me, your love for your family and even your own life, in contrast, would look like hate. Hate. There's so much distance between the two. Your love for me, your allegiance to me is so strong, so fervent, so supreme that everything else isn't a close second. It's way, way, way down on the list. Now, we get this idea of um, loving one less as we look at a parallel passage in Matthew 10, 37 through 39... Similar teaching, he says it this way there. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Can't be my disciple. Um, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You can't be my disciple. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those are hard words. If you have ears to hear, listen up. To be Christ's disciple, your love and allegiance to Christ must surpass the love and allegiance you have for your family and even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be his disciple. Now, I've, I've honestly been torn, and I'm not landing dogmatically on this, but as I think about his statement that you cannot be my disciple, I've, I've really wrestled with, I don't know if it, him saying, I'm not going to let you, or you just simply won't be able. I'm leaning toward you won't be able. I, it's like he's trying to help these people. And he's saying, listen, if you have competing allegiances, it's never gonna work because I require too much of you. You're gonna have to choose. It's hard to hear but so true and isn't it wonderful that Jesus would tell us and not leave us guessing. Now, if we go back into Luke in verse 27, he introduces the idea of the cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, once again, here's the second condition, cannot be my disciple. So following Christ is going to require bearing a cross and coming after him. And as I thought about the cross, I thought, you know what? We have really sanitized what it means. Like we... Jewelry, pictures, hanging wall hangings, all kinds of stuff. Nothing wrong with all that. The cross is a, is a precious thing to us, isn't it? But the cross was a place of death, a place of humiliation, a place of torture and suffering. And it still means that. And Jesus is saying, he's drawing on actual imagery from first century when a Roman uh, sentenced a person to death by crucifixion. They made that prisoner bear their, the crossbeam of their cross through town, humiliated in front of everybody. They carried that tool of death to their place of death. That's the picture he's he's pointing to. He's saying, listen, you want to be my disciple? You want to be a follower and not a fan? Strap on the cross. Bear its weight. And let it do in you what needs to be done. Because the fact is, you and I, we need to die to ourselves. And there is no other way than by way of the cross, a way of sacrifice. Because of the verb tense here, it's an ongoing thing, so literally it would say, whoever is not bearing his cross and coming after me, so this isn't a one-time thing. You don't just do it one day and you're done forever, it's ongoing, Luke 9, 23 and 24, so going back several months for us, uh, he said something similar. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So if we're going to be followers, not fans, we begin every day remembering that the cross is essential. The condition Jesus gives here for being His disciple is a relentless and selfless identification with Him despite any hardship one encounters as a result of doing so. I love the words of uh, pastor, theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. I listed this in your outline when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Hard words. Scary words. Sobering words. Words that we probably ought to think about and that's what Jesus does next is he not only gives them the cost, he recommends that they give it some thought. Look at verse uh, 28. He gives two illustrations here, actually. First of all, he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So... Jesus is inviting this great crowd full of fans and followers to really take in the idea that they are going to have to bear a cross, to hate family and their own life in contrast to their allegiance to him, and he he wants them to think about that. Now part of what we need to figure out is why. Why do they need to think about that? Well, because there's no more important decision in life. This isn't just deciding, well, do I want to go to the party or not? Do I want to go to that city or not? Do I want to take that job or not? This is like all of life crammed into this decision. Those in the crowd may have been thinking, hey, we're good to go. I mean, we love Jesus. Remember, we're enthusiastic admirers. We've got everything we need. We're just glad to be here. I I think Jesus told this illustration because had they sat down and counted the cost, they would realize they are actually the builder who doesn't have enough to finish the job. I. Uh, Bob Deffenbaugh, he's a pastor and a DTS professor. I, I really like how he handles this. See, a, a lot of times when we talk about discipleship, we talk about it as it's like the Navy SEALs or the Green Beret. It's like disciples are those people who are just tough enough. They just got grit. They just they have something in them that just not everybody has. That's discipleship. It's all about commitment, And it seems to me like Jesus is saying, you might want to just count the cost and see if you really have what you need. And I would argue that any person that does that is going to find you don't have what it takes. You need God to do for you what you can't do for yourself, not only in your conversion, but in all of life. You know, it's interesting, if you think about the disciples, anytime they were kind of beating their chest, it didn't go well. <laughs> Usually they were embarrassed in some way or another. One of their finest moments is in John 6. It's when Jesus says some other hard things to a crowd. Everybody leaves, and he looks at the 12, and he says, Hey, you guys want to go too? And what did they say? Where would we go? You're the only one who has words of eternal life. We can't find it anywhere else. We're like builders, and we counted the cost. We looked around. We had some stuff, and you know, we, we for a while, we kind of hung on to those things, but we realized it wasn't ever going to get us there. We were going to have an unfinished building that would be worthy of mockery. We're not going anywhere. Not because we're gritty and tough. Not because we're full of commitment. It's because we don't have anywhere else to go. That is awesome. That's the perspective of a disciple. Discipleship is better understood in terms of surrender, not commitment. And that leads us to the second illustration. Jesus points to a king. He says, What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first, there it is again, sitting down, and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. (laughs) It's just such a great picture. Each of us starts out life seated on the throne of our lives, don't we? And we naturally believe that we got it figured out, that we can take care of ourselves, that we can make life work, we can get everywhere we want to go, but over time, life shows us We're deficient. And then, at some point, Jesus comes along. (laughs) He's like the king with an army double the size of ours, and he confronts us. And and once we know he's there, we're we're confronted with the possibility of war and peace. He offers both. And we have to decide, which do we want? Can, Can we handle war with him? And we realize we can't. So then we ask for terms of peace. And his terms are shocking. We just read them a minute ago. (laughs) Hate your family. Hate your life. Bear your cross. Come after him and no one else. Those are the terms. But a lot better than the alternative, right? Jesus says, following me will be costly. Sit down. Think about it. Do some good inventory so that you can see reality for what it really is in your life. After these illustrations, Jesus comes back around and it's like, just in case you missed the big idea, let me repeat myself. Verse 33. Therefore... Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So this is, in some ways, a summary. A lot of commentators will point to possessions, but um, it seems to me like he is just taking all of life, anything at all that you and I might put any bit of hope in for life, and he says you got to renounce it all Once again, it doesn't mean that you have to get rid of everything. It just means that it doesn't have the place in your life that only Jesus Christ should inhabit. You don't look for life in any other places, in any other thing, only in Jesus. Uh, let's go back to Luke 9:23 and 24. That that phrase, he says there, for whoever would save his life will lose it. If you're holding on to those earthly things that promise life but can't deliver, you will lose life. What a gracious, merciful bit of truth that Jesus offers this crowd. Whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says. You'll save it. So it, it strikes me that being a disciple isn't a natural ability that some have and some don't. The, again, this isn't like some are tougher than others, have more grit. There are practices that can be developed. Think about prayer and Bible study, fasting, what, like the disciplines. Like We can get better at that stuff. But being a disciple isn't a skill to be honed. Being a disciple is a way of life for those who have surrendered their will to Jesus. That's it. That's the bottom line. Christian discipleship is letting go of or renouncing any potential or actual counterfeit gods. It's those little self-made saviors that all of us have. It's letting go of all of those and taking hold of the life and love that only Jesus can give. That is discipleship in its, in its simplest form. There's a great little parable Jesus tells in Matthew 13. It's, it's really just an exchange. One verse The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. That's life. Which a man found, covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field because he knows life is there. He knows the treasure is there of the kingdom. That's, That's the picture of what Jesus is talking about. Paul points to this exchange in his life in Philippians 3. Remember, he lists all of his advantages, all of his gain, he calls it. He's a Jew, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, zealous, blameless beyond everybody else. And here's what he says about all of those things. I counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. There it is. He's doing exactly what Christ said must be done. In order to be his disciple. So, following Christ necessarily means no longer looking to the things of this world for the life that only Jesus can give you. As Jesus wraps up, he uses another illustration using salt. Essentially, this is the warning stay salty, my friends. Verse 34 Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now salt was treasured in the ancient world. It it had a lot of different purposes. Certainly it was seasoning, but it was also used by Uh, bakers in their ovens, it was used as fertilizer, and it was also used as a preservative. So it was used in a number of ways. Honestly, it's even served as currency because of its incredible value. Jesus is saying, salt, which everybody knows is very valuable, it's good as long as it keeps its properties. But without those properties, it's useless for the purposes that it normally fulfills. Like if salt doesn't have salt in it, (laughs) then it can't be salt. It can't do what only salt can do. That's the picture he's painting here. Now let me take that and apply it to the crowd. Let's do a paraphrase here as it relates to this great crowd that's gathered around Jesus. Jesus might say a crowd of people who profess to be Christians is good, right? Yeah. But if that crowd is full of fans and not followers or disciples of Jesus, then how can that crowd do anything but reproduce fans? Now what does the Great Commission say? Go into all the world and make what? Disciples, not fans, not admirers. Followers, people who bear their cross daily. That's who, Christians, disciples, that's who they're called to go and reproduce. Well, if you've lost your saltiness, then you're not gonna be able to do that. Eugene Peterson in The Message translates this idea of saltiness. He says, if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? What a great question. The Western church has unfortunately lost a great deal of saltiness. Our affections are often misdirected. We collectively place far greater emphasis on our pet causes, whatever they may be, and we shriek with moral outrage. Posts, tweets, blogs. We get all hot and bothered about all kinds of stuff except what is most important. Rather than bearing the fruit of the Spirit, I think we often exercise the works of the flesh. Leon Ferguson says, the Christian is different. Sometimes frustratingly, annoyingly, maddeningly different. But he or she is also the only one who ultimately can be trusted to tell the whole truth. Why should the church be so concerned to tell the world that it is not really very different from the world? That's often what we do. The church then becomes both powerless and pointless. It's like salt that has no salt. Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher and theologian. This is in the 1800s. It's amazing how contemporary this sounds. Woe to the person who smoothly, flirtatiously, commandingly, convincingly preaches some soft, sweet something that is supposed to be Christianity. Christianity. Oh, the time wasted in this enormous work of making Christianity so reasonable. A stumbling block, I'm sorry, and then trying to make it so relevant. Sometimes the gospel doesn't feel sweet and nice and relevant to the world. Sometimes it's offensive, uh, John Piper says we are waking up, and he actually wrote this a few years ago in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. Insulated Western Christianity is waking up from the dream world that being a Christian is normal or safe. More and more true Christianity is becoming what it was at the beginning, foolish and dangerous. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So let me summarize this passage using uh, these words about saltiness. A disciple of Christ is supposed to be salty, and that means to be a disciple or follower according to his description. He sets the terms, remember? So... One cannot be salty if their love for Christ doesn't surpass that of their family or their life. It just can't be done. One cannot be salty if they are unwilling to suffer for their faith. Now, I don't know what that will look like. But whatever it looks like, whenever it might come, one who is salty will embrace it. One cannot be salty if they are unwilling to part with their possessions, with their stuff, with the things that offer them temporary life. And one cannot be salty if they have not wholeheartedly and repeatedly surrendered their will to the will of God. One of the saltiest characters I've ever heard of I mentioned him earlier, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. I would highly commend that to you. But I want to read uh, one little excerpt from that and then a book about Bonhoeffer that was written by a guy named Eric Metaxas. In the introduction to the cost of discipleship, here's what Bonhoeffer says. If we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to Him, for only He knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow Him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy discipleship means joy. Now, it's easy to write stuff like that and so much harder to live it. See, a a person can write that and it's like that builder who just says they're going to build a tower. Didn't count the cost. And then when it comes down to it, they can't finish. Let me tell you how Dietrich Bonhoeffer finished his life. Um, he was in a concentration camp. Hitler basically ordered his execution, but they would put them through kind of a mock trial to, to give some a semblance of justice, I guess. Um, anyway, Bonhoeffer is taken to a concentration camp in uh, Flossenbürg. And there's a camp doctor there. His name is H. Fisher Hulstrung. And he didn't know who Bonhoeffer was, but he saw everything go down. And I want to read you what he saw of this man. On the morning of that day, between five and six o'clock, the prisoners, among them Admiral Canaris, General Oster, General Thomas, and I can't even pronounce that, it's German, sock. were taken from their cells and the verdicts of the court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in the room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. That's salty. That is one who has submitted his life to Christ lost everything and found it in the only place it could be found. Let me ask you a few questions to consider as a so what. Um, These are hard words but as Jesus said if you have ears to hear 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 Three questions. Are you surrendering? And I I even thought about how to ask that question. I'm assuming that maybe there was a time in your life when you said, I surrender. I surrendered. I did way back there. And I think the question for us today is, are you surrendering now, today? And is that a way of life for you? Are you dying more and more to your ways and following hard after Christ? So tempting to go after those things that seem right to us without asking. Our master, our savior. And then lastly, based on how this has been described, are you salty or something else? Or perhaps using this whole framework of the morning, are you a fan or a follower take a few moments ask the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth about you and that truth comes with grace and mercy sometimes it's so hard to hear but what we have is a savior who when we do come to him and we say I don't know where else to go you're the only one that has words of eternal life he's like yes right that's right So receive it. Take a moment. Ask ask him how you need to respond to this hard message. And I'll pray for us in just a moment. confess to you my own self-will, my own self-reliance, how easy it is to just go after empty temporary things that promise high and deliver nothing. Lord I. I want to follow hard after you, and I pray that for all who are in the sound of my voice, Lord. Would you make all of us salty followers, disciples who have renounced everything because we know that you're better than any version of life we could ever make on our own. Lord, give us the grace that we need to walk in that posture of dependence and cause our dependence upon you to bear much fruit until you return. I pray that in the precious name of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well... Happy Mother's Day, moms. I hope you have an awesome time with your family today. And uh, please make sure that you do check in to Realm this week so that we can continue to to prepare for these weeks ahead. We've got some adjustments that we'll be making along the way, but I'm very thankful that we got to take this first step today together. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you guys next week. God bless. Love you.